Thank you for checking out this talk from the Fierce Families Conference that took place back in October of 2023. Our mission for this conference was to put God's design for marriage and family on full display, and then to equip marriages and families to live out God's beautiful design in the context in which he's placed them. So if you'd like to learn more about the Fierce Families Conference, perhaps to attend a conference in the future, or to bring the Fierce Families Conference to your own area, just go to fiercefamilies.com. Greetings and welcome to day two. Like I said, this is a joy of my lovely wife and mine. We've been dreaming of a day like this uh, for years. Not because, not for any other reason than just to see God's glory among the families um, that he's allowed us to minister to, both uh, here in our community, but also uh, everywhere else. So the question I want to start today with, now to give you kind of a picture of the event, is yesterday morning was biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. We looked at that with Sober judgment, what does God's word have to say about us as men and women? Yesterday evening, we looked at marriage. What does God's word have to say about men and women coming together in a union, the union of marriage? And today we're looking more or less at parenting, family. And so in light of that, the question I want to ask is, what is God requiring of us, not as parents, but as, not just as parents, but as adults of his kingdom in this moment? Okay, so we all believe in a sovereign, powerful all-knowing, holy, infinitely good God. Amen? That's our God. He could have put you in any moment in history for any reason, and he would have unequivocally had a purpose for you in that place, in that moment, and among those people to somehow maximize his glory. That's why you're here today. Now, the same is true for your children. He's placed them in your arms today. He's put, put them in the world for their future uh, glory that they will bear for his name in the context that he places them years from now. So the question remains, what is God actually requiring of us as parents and as families in this moment? So again, to, to, to nod back to what I spoke on yesterday, consider our reality, right? Consider this moment, the one that you were placed in, whether you're from Washington or not. We have some folks from out of town. Some, there's a weirdo from Georgia floating around here somewhere. I don't know where he is. He called me a weirdo yesterday, so I got to get him back. But our society has arguably changed more in the past 50 years than it has in our entire history as a nation. One could also argue that it's changed more in the past four years than the previous 50 combined. We need to wrap our heads around this. We are living in a new world. It is a new world. The 2023 America is not 2019 America. It is just not the same place. Economically, politically, there's been a cataclysmic shift in the ethos of our time. The tectonic plates of our culture have shifted, and whatever bubbled beneath the surface before is now spilling forth into the mainstream. It is a new world. We must act accordingly. The old plans will not endure. So my hope for this talk is to enliven you and quicken your spirits and your minds to recover or refresh, if you already have it, the notion of multi-generational thinking and this, not just so our children can manage to survive. This must be emphasized. It's not just so they can survive, but it's so that we might put them on the offense in their generation while also lifting their eyes to think decades down the line as well. Before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, you are mighty, good, and glorious, and true, and you have chosen to relate to your people as a loving Father. You could have related to us in any way, and it would have been sufficient. You could have simply called yourself king, could have simply called yourself God, creator, but you saw good to relate to us as father. 
Help us understand your word and apply how we think about it. Excuse me, help us apply it to how we think about being fathers and mothers who disciple our kids. In your precious name we pray, amen. Okay. So I'll bring it up again. What is God requiring of us? As providence would have it, days ago, I was praying, preparing for this, and I'm thinking, okay, what? This discipling distance idea has been bubbling in my heart for, for years, and I've written some on it. We've done some podcasts on it. So what, what can I do for this one 30-minute talk? And I had this thing come into my inbox, and it was actually the latest bleeding-edge Barna study coming out of the Cultural Research Center in Arizona. Right? Some of you are familiar with Barna. They do all kinds of this sort of work. And the study asked these three basic questions, but they're huge. And the first question is this. What are the fundamental, excuse me, the foundational beliefs of a biblical worldview? What are they? Question two. How many adolescents adhere to each one? And then given those two questions, what are the odds the next generation of U.S. adults will ever develop a biblical worldview? This study claims to find out the answers to these questions. Of course, I was, my, my interest was piqued because these are the questions for every generation of parents. And it's timely for where we are. So I opened the email. I usually don't do that. <laughs> I ignore the emails. But here's what it says. That based on the research, Barna identified seven specific beliefs known as the, quote, seven cornerstones of biblical worldview. And these beliefs significantly increase the likelihood that an individual will develop a biblical worldview beyond adolescence. They provide a very strong foundation for developing that philosophy of life. Individuals who embrace all seven cornerstones, Barna found, have an astounding, hear this, 83% chance of developing a complete biblical worldview into adolescence and beyond. But here's another harrowing fact. Those who reject even one of the seven pillars, just one of them, have only a 2% chance. So you're dying to know what the seven cornerstones are. Well, I'm sorry to say I can't tell you. They're too long. I can't get into it. But I've summarized them like this, and just trust me in this. There's three big things that the Barna study revealed that people need to believe. One, the all-powerful creator God of the Bible is real. Okay, kids need to know that. Number two, they need to know that they are a sinner and Jesus is their only hope for salvation. Okay. Third one, the Bible is trustworthy. Not only is it trustworthy, but it's necessary it's necessary to obey what God's word says for, every, uh, for, for one's entire life. Okay. So God is real, sin is real, and I'm a sinner. God's word is trustworthy. That's what they have to believe. So of those points of belief, which again, I've just summarized all seven of them into three, according to this study, now this is what they found. So they asked these questions, and they, they knew what the questions indicate if someone believes them, but who actually believes these, these questions? What do the statistics bear out? And what they found was that only 3% of all 8 to 12-year-olds adhered to all of their beliefs. 3%. Now, they're not, they're not Christian audiences, so okay, this is a, a cross-section of our society. 3% of 8 to 12-year-olds believe these things. 26% embraced not one. The middle 71% disbelieved one or more of the original seven beliefs, functionally becoming someone who would be an unbeliever into adulthood. Doesn't this great on you? Isn't our, isn't our country supposed to be an American country? Or, excuse me, a, a Christian country founded on the mores of the Christian faith? Of course, I do believe it was founded on the mores of the Christian faith, but it's not being maintained on them. So the email goes on. America's children are in the process of adopting what's called syncretism. 
As their predominant worldview, Barna said, they are following in the footsteps of their parents, of whom only 2% of their parents have a biblical worldview. The other, and 96% of them are syncretists. As soon as I read that to Selena, she said, what's syncretism? I said the same thing, so I already, had already defined it. Syncretism is this. It says it can, it can be best described as an amalgamation of popular or pragmatic belief. Syncretism involves the merging of several traditions or religions and acting like there's a grand unity between them that allows all sides to just get along and basically be equally true, despite being antithetical to one another. Right? So Jesus, Jesus, yeah, totally is the, the way, the truth, and the life. Unless he's not the way, the truth, and the life. Some other way can also be the truth and the life. So syncretism believes. My question is, is Christ Lord or is he not? It would appear that the vast majority of our nation's children are being taught and thus believe, maybe, maybe Christ is Lord. Maybe God is God. Maybe the Bible is true. Maybe God is relevant to my everyday life. And people often uh, push back on us for our, uh, how we've articulated our, um, the priority of a, of a Christocentric education for our kids, right? It's a, it's a sensitive topic. If you want to get the internet upset, talk about how to educate your kids. Well, I think we have much at our disposal as Christians, but I don't believe Christocentricity is, neg- is negotiable. And, and my, the trouble I see in government schools is I'm going I'm to start this fire, I'm sorry, but it's not that God is just absent, it's that they're taught that God is irrelevant to their life. Not only is he, is he not there, but he's not needed. Who needs God? Who needs God for science? We have science. Who needs God for math? We have math itself. It's all... It's all unhinged from context in God. So Barna continues, quote, This mindset and lifestyle of syncretism is modeled daily by parents for their children and has become the default position for the majority of Christian adults, adolescents, and children. So according to the research, a mere 3% of adolescent children believe the core teachings of Christianity, which means that those 3%, okay, you got to track with me, so 3% believe. Now, of those 3% that believe, 86% of those will actually go on to become full-orbed people with Christian worldviews. This means that in a room of 100 kids, you take any 100 kids from our society, you put them in a room, two to three of those kids will eventually be Christians at the current trajectory. Why do I say all this? Well, the fruit, friends, of our past methods of approaching our discipleship, they're ripening. Those fruits are ripening. Decades of this method are coming to bear, and it's already rotten to the core. It's already rotten to the core. So what's the solution? Okay. We must disciple dissidents. If you don't know what that means, here we go. We must raise our children in such a way that they, will, they are faithful dissidents in a culture that is antithetical to and even active in suppressing their belief in Christ. We must prepare them in such a way that they reject cultural lies, they behold biblical truth, and are ready and able to teach their children to do the same. So you have the lie, they reject it, they behold the truth, and they teach it to their children, and we, they have to be taught to teach it as well. We can't just give it to them and say, you're good. No, you have to give it on, pass it on. To this end, here I propose three areas of focus for the parents that God's placed in today's context, and that's you. If you, if you have kids, whether they're babies or they're grown, this is you, all right? So number one, this is the solution, the principle And what is the principle? It's understanding the idea of paideia. I'll explain what that is. Number two, the practice. In other words, paideia applied. And number three, the perspective. Recapturing multi-generational thinking. 
You'll have a chance to capture all that if you're taking notes. So let's get into number one. Number one, the Paideia principle. What is it? Let's go to Scripture. So Deuteronomy 4.9 says this. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Here it is. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Okay, we've all probably read that verse. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, echoes the same idea. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Don't forget that part. That's on you. That's the parent. They should be on your heart. Then you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's an outline for, we'll get into that passage just in a bit. Then Ephesians 6, this is where we get the idea of Pi Day. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We all love that verse, right? Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long in the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So certainly this is one of those passages that's very familiar to us all, but what may be less familiar, and this is the part I want to get into, is that final last imperative, raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Well, that's how the, the King James version words it. The ESV says it like this, discipline and instruction. The American Standard Version renders it chastening and admonition. Well, which is it? We have five terms. We have nurture, admonition, we have discipline, we have instruction, we have chastening. But in my view, now I humbly submit to you, in my view, those words all fall short. Not not that I could do better, right? They're trying to put a 10-ton idea into a Ziploc bag, so it's not easy to do. I have a whole talk where I can let you know what it means. So the word Paul uses in the Greek is actually paideia. And it's really hard for us to understand how weighty this term is, right? So I've heard it compared to things like democracy or philosophy or even just worldview. But I would say to to raise a child in the Greek paideia is to raise them to be enculturated with all of the customs the norms, the affections, the morality, the shared cultural experiences, even the nostalgia of a Greek citizen. That would be the Greek paideia. And the same can be said about the Roman paideia or even the American paideia. What is our paideia? So we have to understand, Paul would have been making a radical statement here to these folks he was talking to in Ephesus. Right? They were used to the, the, the Greek paideia or whatever paideia they were being raised in. He's telling them, reject any other paideia that you think you need to raise your kids in. Instead, put this in that place and raise them in the full enculturation of God. It's a radical claim. It's a radical claim. This would have landed on the Greek ears and within their father's hearts with the full weight, again, of a word like democracy. Right? If, you, if you're living in a totalitarian state and someone says, now you're no longer totalitarian, now be democratic. That's a huge mindset. That's what Paul was doing here. And so the best word I can come up with to replace nurture, admonition, paideia in the English language would be enculturation. That's the driving principle that we as parents are commanded to pursue with regard to raising our children. That's the full enculturation of our children into the people of God, into the paideia of God. So that's what paideia is. It's this big, weighty concept, the idea of enculturating your children into God's way, no other way. Now how do we 
Apply it. So that's number two, the practice. Paideia applied. The theme of this conference is three words. They're actually behind me now. They were supposed to be behind me yesterday when I said it, but I said the same thing. They're behind me. Faithful, fruitful, and fierce. So therein lies the key. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. I want to quickly go through this verse. And it says this, And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So I fear that the reason that only 3% of our young are projected to develop a truly Christian worldview is because though Christians, we are, we are well-meaning, we often stop applying this scripture after it says, you shall teach. We just hear teach. As if somehow uttering the instructive word is all that is asked of us. But the key to faithfulness is to keep going down the passage. There's at least eight more clues. We can just go through them very quickly. You shall teach God's commands, what? Diligently to your children. Diligence, rigor, effort, faithfulness over time, consistency. Yet I fear at times we forego diligence in the name of ease or convenience, right? I'm guilty of it. The second part is, we, and we talk, we shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And this is easy to explain. We all have houses, I mean, we all have a place, a place of living. This means that it's part of our daily conversation. It's the air that we breathe. If we're going through a hard thing, how does God's paideia speak to that situation? If your child's suffering with something, or dealing with something, how does God's paideia deal with that situation? If someone in our life is going through something, if we're choose, making a big life decision, what is God's paideia? In our, is he part of that conversation? Talk of them when you sit in your house. Are we marveling at the wonders of God? You can spend a whole sermon talking about what that could look like. But we'll go on. Number three is when you walk by the way. Now, we don't walk like they used to in these days, but we do have transitional moments. We have moments that are uh, between car rides, grocery, grocery runs, trips to the hardware store, visits to friends. Are those moments saturated with God's paideia? Or are they saturated with whatever happens to float on the radio waves that day? And when we lie down, in other words, the, the things of God cap off your day, or when you rise, or the things of God begin every morning is what he's saying. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. The things of God are bound up, as the Israelites would have understood, with our very hands. In other words, the bodily agents of our action and our doing. For those in Christ, there is no doing, there is no making, there is no striving or pursuing that is aside from the sovereign decrees and grace of God. And do we acknowledge that? Is it bound up with our doing? This part always confused me is they shall be frontlets between your eyes. What, is that? How, what does that mean? Well, I read a commentary. He said this, the words of God were to be bound for a sign or a memorial between your eyes, the organs of direction in walking or moving, and so on the forehead, the chamber of thought and purpose. So on our hands, the agents of doing, on our eyes, the agents of our direction, our walking and our moving, and on our forehead, the chamber of thought and purpose. How profound is that? Do we have the things of God before our eyes in that way? The final one is you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The same commentators wrote this. said, The purport of this is that the Jews were constantly and everywhere to have these commandments of the Lord in view and in mind and to do so undeviatingly as a means of observing them. So they would post them everywhere in conspicuous places around their dwellings. But instead, 
What do we have? And this is upsetting. This will be upsetting, so I apologize. I'm not going to apologize. But what's the American paideia? We have the American paideia. It's our televisions occupy shrines of prominence in our homes, and our phones fill our pockets and our minds with the drivel and pablum. It hurts. It stings, right? But what's worse, we give so much of our time and our attention away to each one. So if you're feeling challenged, that's okay. That's, what, that's why I said it. That's why I'm here. We must reject the American paideia. We must reject it. It's no longer a, a convergence of the two. Christianity, American paideia together. No, there's one. The American paideia. And our actions are the substance of our belief in that truth. So we've talked about paideia. We've talked about what Deuteronomy says and how to actually apply paideia into our families, into our households, into our own hearts and minds. Now let's talk about the perspective very quickly. The perspective. What I mean by that is recapturing the multi-generational thinking. And to me, this is the essence of discipling true dissidents. Right? I think a lot of times we think in categories, I need to disciple my kids so that they can get saved, they'll get baptized, or whatever the order is. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the fence, Rich. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm working through it. But we want our kids to get saved so that we can, ah, we, can, we can breathe the deep breath and rest and say, okay, they're saved. Well, is that the end, all be all of the Christian life? Is that it? Is that where it ends? Why doesn't God just take us now? No, they, our kids are saved unto something. Yes, eternal glory with Christ and, and all the wonders of, of that. But they are saved into a, a life that exemplifies a Christian life unto the glory of God. This is what multi-generational thinking is. Child, you are not just saved for you. You are saved for your children and your children's children. This is your inheritance. You may have heard this Greek proverb. A society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they shall never sit. That has a ring to it, right? <laughs> the power of that proverb, though, is not in planting trees. It's not even in the selflessness of it. I would, I would argue the, part, the, the power of that Thought is in the long-term thinking. And as Christians, we have more reason than any other to embrace multi-generational thinking in this way. And why? Because we have a God who is covenantal. He thinks in multi-generational terms. God commanded us not to worship idols. He said this, I, the Lord, am your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, that's three and four generations down of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. To the thousandth generation. What does that do to one's eschatology? <laughs> when they think about a thousand generations. So as parents, I think we're pretty good at thinking about our kids, our kids as kids. And we think about inheritance, we think about those sorts of things. But we may not be able to fathom a thousand generations, but what if we were to think four generations or five generations down the line? What if we're not just thinking in terms of storing up wealth? Okay, Wealth is good. Proverbs 13.22. A righteous man stores up an inheritance for his kids and his grandchildren. But what if we also were to primarily think of ways to specifically train them to store up and safeguard the wealth of their greatest inheritance, which is Christ himself? So, in 90 years, you and I will be dead. If you're in this room, even the youngest of us, we will be gone. An entirely different population of humans will be on this planet. Yet, the ideas, the institutions, the infrastructure that we leave for them 
will be that which we gave them. We will be gone. They will be here. Now imagine your children's children in that time. If you have young children right now, chances are your grandkids will be in the twilight of their lives 90 years from now. They will have lived full lives, made memories, had kids, all that like, but how will they raise their children? How will they have raised their children to raise their own great-grandchildren? That's, that's what discipling dissidents is all about. And I know we can't predict or control the future, and we can't, can't claim sovereignty. This is not a way of controlling what's going to happen to generations down the line. What this is, is a way of thinking covenantally. It's a way of thinking faithfully in what we do today. This is what discipling dissidents is all about. Okay. So, how might we learn to disciple our children with our, their great-grandchildren in mind? Not just our great-grand, their great-grandchildren. Number one, we've talked about it, raise them in the paideia of God. Number two, raise them with the generational perspective that God also has. Teach them to embrace God's generational thinking. You never learn anything as clearly as when you are responsible then to learn that thing and teach that same thing to others. They take ownership of the knowledge, they take ownership of their own faith because it's theirs to pass along. And trust me, friends, kids are not too young to teach this to them. They don't have to be in their teens to tell them this. Start young. Generations are coming. Prepare. It's for them to pass it along, to disciple their own children, to teach their children. It's not just for them. That's the key. It's not just for you, child. It's for your children as well. So we have been given a massively massively powerful institution in the nuclear home. We must reevaluate what it means to be faithful parents in this exact moment for our exact kids in this exact circumstance and with their unforeseen future in mind. We must reevaluate what it means reevaluate what it means to raise our young in God's paideia. But, okay, we've done the head work. Hopefully, you've learned a little something. You're going to go home and learn even more. Today, when other speakers come up, you're going to learn something. But we must now do the lifting, and only we can, as God has placed this glad burden in our hands, and we must trust that he will strengthen us to bear it. If it feels like it's crushing you, give it back to God. Ask him to help you bear it. To disciple faithful dissidents, we must embrace God's paideia ourselves, truly internalizing it, and then give it to our children to show them how to give it to theirs for generations to come. And indeed, there is much work to be done. The days are long, I agree, and the hours are short, but we must, we must do this worthy, wonderful work with faithfulness and conviction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us all we need for life and godliness in your matchless word. And in your word, we see a high calling and a high bar, and it's sobering for parents who hope to raise our children to love and serve you. So Lord, help us. Help us with joy to be faithful and to forgive our, faithless, forgive our faithlessness, our nearsightedness, and enliven our hearts and quicken our souls to also roughen our hands with the work of raising faithful children. In Jesus' name, amen.